Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the murder of John and Hannah Peck. But first, your true crime headlines. A New Jersey woman is facing murder charges after stabbing her husband to death with a nail clipper during a domestic dispute. 30-year-old Kathleen Ayala admitted to stabbing 35-year-old Axel Torres with the metal file from a nail clipper after an argument between the couple turned physical. When police arrived, they found the victim with stab wounds in his feet, hands, shoulders, and left leg. Ayala told the police that she had committed the attack but only wanted to scare her husband and not seriously harm him. She was initially charged with assault, but the charge was upgraded to murder after Torres died from his injuries at a local hospital. In Salisbury, Maryland, the trial is underway for a man accused of gunning down his ex-wife on Easter Sunday, 2018. 37-year-old Jamil Gould is facing charges of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, home invasion, and reckless endangerment for the April 2018 incident which claimed the life of his ex-wife, 30-year-old Erica Gould. Erica Gould and her family had just returned home from church that Easter Sunday when she found her ex-husband waiting for her at her residence. He ordered her terrified children to go upstairs and then pulled a gun on Erica. The gun jammed when he tried to fire it, and Erica attempted to flee, running up the stairs and locking herself in a bedroom and then climbing out a window onto the home's roof. Jamil Gould followed her up the stairs, kicking in the bedroom door before following her out onto the roof and shooting her twice. As the trial began, jurors listened to a 911 call placed by Erica Gould's sister in the moments after the attack, and then heard testimony from Erica Gould's nine-year-old son, who also spoke to the 911 operator after his aunt was too overcome with emotion to continue. The young boy was the first witness called by the prosecution. In his testimony, he described walking into the house after church and seeing Jamil, who ordered the children to go upstairs. The child testified that he heard screaming, but didn't know whose, and that when he eventually left his bedroom, he saw his mother lying on the roof outside of the home. Jurors also heard testimony from the victim's sister and viewed police body camera footage from the incident. More witnesses are expected as the trial continues. Jamil Gould faces life in prison if he is convicted. The wife of a man accused of raping and killing their six-year-old son may be called to testify at his second murder trial, which is set to begin next month. 45-year-old Mauricio Torres of Bella Vista, Arkansas, was arrested in April of 2015 for the death of his six-year-old son, Maurice Isaiah Torres, who died of a bacterial infection after being sodomized with a stick while on a camping trip in Missouri. Mauricio Torres was convicted of capital murder and first-degree battery for the crime, and jurors handed down a death sentence in the case. In April of last year, the Arkansas State Supreme Court overturned Torres' conviction on the grounds that the assault happened while the family was camping in Missouri, and Arkansas prosecutors could not use the rape as justification for a capital murder charge because it happened outside of their jurisdiction. 
a new trial for Torres is scheduled to begin in February, and prosecutors are again seeking the death penalty. Charges against Torres have been amended to knowingly killing a child for which he has pleaded not guilty. As part of a deal to avoid the death penalty, Torres' wife, Kathy, pled guilty to capital murder in 2017 and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Kathy Torres did not testify in her husband's first trial, but agreed to provide her testimony in his upcoming trial as part of her plea agreement. She is part of a list of more than 100 potential witnesses for the prosecution. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the murder of John and Hannah Peck. But first, a quick break. If you're a person who sets New Year's resolutions, why not have some fun with it? If you're looking to take care of your body and your mind in 2020, skip the crowded gym. There's a better way to get your heart racing. You need to listen to Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories and guided sessions that are designed to turn you on and help you get in touch with yourself. These relatable and immersive stories make you feel like you are right there. And there's something for everyone, whoever and whatever you're into. They have short stories if you're afraid of commitment. I like the serialized stories because I'm in this for the long haul. And Dipsy adds new content every week, so don't worry, the well will never run dry. Whether you're a voyeur, a couple, gay, straight, or into BDSM, Dipsy has something for everyone. And if you are in a relationship, Dipsy's guided sessions can also help you unlock new confidence and heighten intimacy with your partner. Find stories about a spontaneous hookup with a hot stranger, getting closer with that yoga instructor that you can't stop thinking about, or even stories about trying that new toy together or getting tied up. Sounds like I have new plans for Valentine's Day. For Murder Minute listeners, Dipsy is now offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com mm. That's a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsestories.com slash mm. What are you waiting for? Dive into Dipsy at dipsystories.com slash mm. Have you ever looked at the back of your lotions and potions and thought, what are all these chemicals, and why am I putting them on my body? And have you tried natural deodorants, only to find yourself pit-stained and or smelling like a moldy gym towel? It's time to go native. Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day, with trusted ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. Did you know that many conventional deodorants contain aluminum, which forms a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? Yes, really. And no, that doesn't sound safe to me either. Native's deodorant is made without aluminum, parabens, or talc, so you can rest easy about what you're putting on your body. And it works. Making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant does not mean you have to sacrifice on performance. Native will keep you smelling and feeling fresh all day long, with a wide variety of subtle scents for men and women, 
like coconut and vanilla, their most popular scent, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Plus, Native releases limited edition seasonal scents throughout the year, like blackberry and plum, vanilla and chai, and a dozen roses for Valentine's Day. And of course, Native offers an unscented and baking soda-free formula for those with extra sensitivities. Native is vegan and never tested on animals, so Native isn't just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Get the natural deodorant that really works. Go Native. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code MM during checkout. Try it risk-free with free returns and exchanges in the USA. That's nativedeodorant.com promo code MM at checkout. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the murder of John and Hannah Peck. In 1914, 70-year-old John Peck and his wife, 60-year-old Hannah Peck, were worth $6 million. $6 million is an impressive fortune today, but in 1914, it was an unimaginable sum. The Peck estate would have been worth the equivalent of over $150 million today. John and Hannah were originally from New York City, but moved to Michigan, where the couple had two children, Percy and Clara and where John and his brother Thomas opened Peck Brothers Drug Company in downtown Grand Rapids. After successfully operating the business for decades, John turned their earnings with the drugstore into a vast fortune by branching out into banking, real estate, timber, and furniture manufacturing. The Pecks had it all, except one thing, a suitable husband for their 27-year-old daughter, Clara. Hannah was beginning to worry. But in the spring of 1914, a local dentist began courting Clara. 28-year-old Arthur Warren Waite, a grocer's son who had attended high school with Clara in Grand Rapids, but had then left to study dentistry at the University of Michigan. It had been a decade since the Pecks had seen Arthur Waite. After dental school, Arthur said he traveled abroad to study oral surgery in Scotland. He then traveled to South Africa, where he directed dental services for a large mining company. The last times the Pecks had seen him, Arthur was an average teenage boy. But Dr. Arthur Waite had returned to Grand Rapids a tall, handsome, and accomplished dental surgeon, and a Rhodes Scholar. He earned trophies as an amateur tennis champion, studied foreign languages, and even dabbled in singing, acting, and writing. To Hannah Peck, Arthur Waite was just what the doctor ordered. And Clara Peck soon gave in to his charm and advances, worn down by not only Arthur, but her mother. On September 9, 1915, Clara and Arthur were married and moved from Grand Rapids into a beautiful, fully furnished apartment in New York the property was purchased for the newlyweds by Clara's father, John, who also arranged a job for his new son-in-law with a cousin, Dr. Jacob Cornell. The newlyweds 
seemed well set, but Arthur wasn't satisfied. John Peck had promised Arthur Waite a dowry of $50,000 after marrying his daughter, roughly $1.2 million today. Dr. Waite assumed that he would be given the sum in full. Instead, his father-in-law paid the dowry in installments of $300 a month, equivalent to around $7,500 a month today. In January of 1916, just after their first Christmas together, Arthur and Clara invited her mother, Hannah, to New York for a visit. Just hours after arriving, Hannah Peck fell ill, and her condition worsened daily. On the morning of Sunday, January 30th, 1916, Hannah Peck died at age 61. Dr. William H. Porter listed her cause of death as kidney disease. Dr. Waite accompanied his mother-in-law's body to Michigan, where she was cremated in Detroit. He then took her ashes back to Grand Rapids, where they were interred at Oak Hill Cemetery. A month later, John Peck decided to visit New York to grieve with his daughter. On February 23rd, John Peck sent a postcard to George M. Matthews, a druggist in Grand Rapids, letting his friend know how he was feeling. I am quite well, and not only that, I am taking good care of the physical body, it read in part. The weather here is not as severe as in Michigan. It lacks the vicious tendency to pneumonia that belongs to the lake regions. But late on the night of Saturday, March 11th, John was taken ill with pains in his abdomen. Dr. Albertus Moore was called and said that it appeared to be stomach trouble, but nothing serious. Don't you think I had better prepare my wife for bad news? Dr. Waite asked. Clara has taken her mother's death to heart so much that I am afraid of the effect of more bad news. Don't be so pessimistic, Dr. Moore said. He will be all right, I'm sure. He'll be around in a few days. Dr. Moore prescribed a soothing remedy and went on his way. But later that night, around 3 a.m. on March 12th, John Peck died at age 72. Dr. Moore advised Dr. Wade to get an autopsy. Yes, that would clear me, wouldn't it? Dr. Wade responded but I am afraid the family would not permit an autopsy to be made. Just hours later, Dr. Waite loaded his father-in-law's body on a Grand Rapids-bound train, and relatives were informed that Peck had died due to severe cold and complications. The day after Mr. Peck's death, Dr. Cornell received news of his cousin's passing. He called at the Waite apartment in New York to pay his respects and request a farewell viewing. But Dr. Waite dismissed him quickly, informing Dr. Cornell that his father-in-law was to be swiftly cremated. Arthur greeted his father-in-law's cousin so rudely that Dr. Cornell was hurt. When he returned home that night, the doctor expressed his shock at the behavior of Waite to his niece, Elizabeth Hardwick. But Elizabeth wasn't as shocked. 
On February 22nd, Elizabeth was having lunch at the Plaza Hotel when she saw Arthur dining with a young woman. Dr. Waite nervously introduced her as a nurse, but Elizabeth was suspicious. When Elizabeth learned that John Peck had died suddenly and that Dr. Waite was intent on a swift cremation, she decided to act. Telling no one of her suspicions, Elizabeth sent an anonymous telegram to John Peck's son in Grand Rapids. On March 16th, Percy Peck received her message. Suspicions aroused demand autopsy. When his father's remains arrived, accompanied by his brother-in-law, Percy took custody of his father's remains. Waite insisted that Peck's dying wish was for a swift cremation, but Percy stalled. A funeral was held, after which John Peck's body was placed in a vault at Oak Hill Cemetery to await autopsy. Dr. Waite returned to New York, and Clara stayed behind in Grand Rapids to grieve the sudden loss of both of her parents. Percy Peck called Dean Vaughn of the University of Michigan Medical School and requested an analysis of the contents of his father's stomach. It was full of arsenic. Percy Peck notified New York District Attorney Edward Swan and asked him to investigate the circumstances of his father's death. A week later, after attempting to bribe the mortician in Grand Rapids with $9,000 to say that he had used arsenic to preserve John Peck's body, Dr. Arthur Warren Waite was arrested in Manhattan. A search of the Waite apartment revealed numerous bacterial cultures and texts dealing with toxicology. Under interrogation, Dr. Waite changed his story several times. First, he claimed that he had obtained the arsenic for his father-in-law because John Peck wanted to commit suicide to end his grief over his wife's death. Then, in an effort to appear insane, Dr. Wade claimed that he was possessed by the spirit of an evil Egyptian priest who had instructed him to kill his in-laws in order to gain their wealth. Finally, he decided that if he told detectives what really happened, he might actually have a better chance at an insanity defense. So, Dr. Waite confessed. He had poisoned his mother-in-law by mixing pneumonia, diphtheria, influenza, and countless other germs into all of Hannah's meals. His father-in-law, however, had been more difficult. John Peck resisted tuberculosis bacteria, chlorine gas, anthrax, and various attempts to give him pneumonia, including dampening his bed sheets. Dr. Waite finally resorted to arsenic, but even that seemed to have little effect, so he used chloroform to knock him out, and then, while Clara slept in the other room, he suffocated her father with a pillow. Why, they asked. For the money, said Dr. Waite. Except Dr. Arthur Warren Waite wasn't really a doctor. Arthur Waite was not a registered physician, he admitted, and 
he had never actually practiced dentistry, or even studied surgery. And he certainly wasn't a Rhodes Scholar. But he did study dentistry. Despite having been caught stealing many times at the University of Michigan, Arthur Waite was allowed to graduate in 1909. Then, when he traveled to Scotland, he falsified his academic records, allowing him to complete a two-year course at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh in just a few months. Once he had a dental surgery degree, he went on to Cape Town, South Africa, to direct dental services for Wellman and Bridgman, a well-known American firm. From there, Arthur sent $7,000 back to his family in Grand Rapids, equivalent to roughly $175,000 today. And in 1914, Arthur was fired for stealing money from the company. He returned to Grand Rapids and began his pursuit of Clara Peck, or rather, of the Peck family fortune. Arthur Waite said that he never loved Clara and that he had planned to kill her next. She did not satisfy me, he said. I wanted her money, and I expected to accomplish great things with it. For months, Arthur had been renting a room at the Plaza Hotel for daily afternoon trysts with a 24-year-old cabaret singer named Margaret Horton. Arthur Waite confessed that his intention was to claim half of the Peck fortune and run off with Margaret to Paris, where he could practice his French. On May 22, 1916, Arthur Waite's trial began. As the courthouse filled with press and spectators, Percy Peck approached the assistant district attorneys. I have one favor to ask, he said, and that is that I can have a seat through every minute of the trial near that man so that I can see the last gleam of hope gradually fade from his face. The New York Times described Arthur Waite's eerily calm demeanor as the jury selection began. Dr. Waite did not prove to be the kind of defendant who helps to make the atmosphere tense. His ordinary expression, which was that of a man only slightly interested in what was going on, changed only once, the paper wrote. At the reply, made by Joseph S. Irving, who was being examined as to his qualifications as a juror. Are you opposed to capital punishment? asked Assistant District Attorney Brothers. Not in this case, replied Mr. Irving. Dr. Waite was one of the first to laugh at this. And the laugh was not forced, as if the defendant had a real appreciation of the grim quality of the limitations on the man's scruples against capital punishment. District Attorney Swan addressed the jury in his opening statement. The cause of this deed was solely the desire for money, gentlemen. There were no angry passions involved, nothing but the purpose of obtaining easy money. Throughout the trial, Arthur Waite confessed to everything in shocking detail. His hope was that in being brutally honest, the jury might find him not guilty by reason of insanity. Just six days after the trial began, 
On May 28, 1916, at 2.46 p.m., the jury returned its verdict after one hour and 25 minutes' deliberation. According to the New York Times, Arthur Waite stood up to hear his verdict with a, quote, pleasantly expectant expression on his face, as if some honor were about to be conferred upon him. The verdict was read, guilty as charged. This is a relief, Waite said, and walked out of the courthouse, whistling. He was only surprised that the verdict had taken so long. Assistant District Attorney Brothers said of the verdict, It is certainly just, and it ends a most interesting case. There will probably never be another one like it. Arthur Waite's unshakable nerve and calm demeanor even shocked the jailkeeper at the tombs, a man who had been in charge of some of the most notable criminals in New York City. Harry Thaw bore no comparison to him, headkeeper Bremel said. Neither of the four gunmen had anything like the nerve this man has. Charles Becker was about the same. Becker and Waite are the only two men I have seen in their situation who possessed perfect self-control. On June 1, 1916, Arthur Waite was sentenced to death by electrocution and sent to Sing Sing. Commissioner Ferro mused at what might have happened if Elizabeth Hardwick had never sent that telegram to Percy Peck. This case was interesting because a woman's intuition seized upon a moment's carelessness on the part of one of the most fiendish murderers in police records to undo the criminal. Without her, the authorities never would have investigated the case. Waite certainly would have murdered his wife, and perhaps others, before he got through. Arthur Waite refused interviews in his cell and instead replied to requests for statements by a note, which read, I have nothing to say at this time. A little later, I might write down my impressions. Nearly a year later, on May 24, 1917, 30-year-old Arthur Warren Waite was executed at Sing Sing. The New York Times wrote, as Waite walked down the corridor of the death house, he called to the other prisoners, Goodbye, boys, he said, with a wave of his hand. As he entered the death chamber, he seemed to waver and grow pale, but it was only for a moment. He didn't lose his nerve. He smiled to the witnesses and walked to the chair. Waite wore to death the same grin that marked him when he made his confession upon the witness stand a year ago. Nothing broke the calmness of the man, who said he was anxious to pay the penalty for his crime. He made no statement in the death chair. Arthur Warren Waite did write down his impressions in an unlikely form. Poetry. Over the course of his year in prison, attempting appeal after appeal and awaiting execution, he wrote over 50 poems, which he mailed to his brother in lieu of letters. The New York Times printed a selection of these poems in 1916. One is titled To A.W.W., His Own Initials, in the form of an address by his soul to his body. 
And thou art dead, dear comrade, in whom I dwelt a time, with whom I strolled through star-kissed bowers of fragrant jasmine. And thou wert weak, O comrade, thyself in self did fail, and now the stars are turned to tears and sobs the nightingale. But though I now must leave you, the same old songs I'll sing, and per your hill the same soft dew will spread its silver wing. Across the fields amongst the stars I now must go alone. Your spirit now will roam afar and leave you, friend, alone. I tried to show thee pleasure, and oft I think the thrill of beauty's soul, my mother love, thy little heart did fill. The music of the waving grain, the midnight silent song. No rose air breathed its breath in vain when you passed, friend, along. Thy tears would start, O comrade, to music's soft caress, the great full moon which wanes too soon, with night still left to bless. The gentle wavelets lapped the shore, and off across the sea, thy tear-dimmed eyes turned evermore, attuned to harmony. Ah, foolish, foolish comrade, why wouldst thou me deny? Why choose the desert's dreary trail, when pastures green lay by? God's soul, God's beauty, well I knew, and oft I begged thee here, and sometimes thou wouldst hearken too, but then wouldst close thine ear. And now thy choice has claimed thee, and thou art nothingness. The desert thorns have maimed thee, its dust thy funeral dress. But you'll be taken back, O oh friend, to rest upon the hill, and I, thy soul, must join the whole and leave thee cold and still. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.